Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. This is the Unseen Leadership Podcast, where we explore the unseen stories that shaped leaders into who they are today. This church was three years old, and they finally concluded, we're going to hire a young preacher who will grow with us, and we're going to make him successful. And I always thought that would be a great slogan for lay leaders. We're going to make our preachers successful. Welcome to the Unseen Leadership Podcast. I am your host, Chandler Vernoy, here as always with my co-host, Josh Hunter. Josh, you've been traveling a lot this this summer. So much. You're back. How you doing, man? Sweaty right now. (laughs) Hot outside, guys. Summer camp is hard. Yeah. Well, man, I am excited for who we have today. How about you? share with our listeners who that is. Yeah, I would love to. Um, We're excited to talk with Bob Russell, who is the former senior pastor of Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And he's the author of the book called After 50 Years of Ministry. Bob, we're happy to have you on today. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing great and I'm glad to be on the program. Thanks for asking me. Hey, we we couldn't think of another name. Well, there are some other names, but we, you know, we thought of you today. So that's the, that's the important piece. Bob, I was, we were talking about this before we hit record, but today's a pretty special day for, uh, for me to be able to talk with you. My wife, uh, she actually grew up going to Southeast Christian and her family as well. So I was sharing with them earlier that I was getting to speak with you. So they were really excited and they, they shared that, man, we're going to, we're going to learn a lot from you today. So thanks. Thanks again for joining us. You married well. She comes from a good family. <laughs> I, I totally agree with that, and that is on record. We know the truth about Chandler, though. <laughs> what is, he's what is he's tricked truth? Allison, but you know it's okay. Hey, I'll I'll take it. Well, Bob, welcome to the podcast. We're excited to have you on. Let's go ahead and hop right in here. I, I know from a very young age, um, of just twenty two years old, you became the pastor of Southeast Christian, uh, which at the time was around one hundred twenty members, and then that small congregation grew to one of the largest churches in America with over 18,000 people attending on the weekend services, which is just an incredible story of God's faithfulness. Can you walk us through a quick overview of the different leadership roles that led you to becoming the the pastor of Southeast? Well, I was growing up, I didn't picture myself as ever being a leader, much less a leader of a mega church. I grew up in the country. I went to a very small church. I had great parents but I really wasn't very interested in being a preacher. I, I was terrified to read in, in front of people in, in a classroom of 30. But uh, the, one of my first leadership lessons was I, I played quarterback on the high school football team and had a lot of insecurities at the time and a lot of uh, feeling of inadequacy. And the football coach took me aside and said, Russell, if you're going to be quarterback, I want you to act cocky. I I want you to walk out there like you're an All-American. So I learned a little bit about sometimes you got to fake it before you make it. uh, I I started to take his advice, and I found out if if I led with confidence, people would follow. And I would say that's probably my first leadership lesson was playing high school football. When I decided my senior year of high school that – God was calling me into the ministry. I never looked back. And uh, I I took a job as a youth minister while I was in Bible college and found out after about a year and a half that being a youth minister was not my primary gift or my (laughs) calling. Uh, But then I took a little country church 
uh, on weekends outside of Cincinnati and traveled out on the weekend to be uh, the, the preacher of this little country church of about 70 people. But I envisioned going back to near my home in Pennsylvania. I was grew up not too far from Erie, Pennsylvania, and maybe uh, uh, establishing a church that would grow to be 200 there. My concept of ministry was the preacher lived off other people's gardens, hmm. and I had no vision at all that I would ever be the preacher of a megachurch. But while I was, when I graduated from Bible college, I said to this little country church, I don't want to be a bivocational minister. Would you consider hiring me full time? Well, they were paying me uh, $50 a weekend to come out on Sunday only. They had a two hour elders meeting and finally decided, okay, we'll, we'll hire you full time. You're going to be our first full time preacher in a hundred years. And we wow. will pay you $70 a week. I, I was worth $20 more for of those other fixed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had been at this little country church for about a year when Southeast Christian Church in Louisville uh, came and asked me if I would consider being their preacher. This church was three years old and they finally concluded that maybe God was leading them to a younger preacher who would grow with them. So they went to the president of Cincinnati Bible College where I had attended and they said, would you give us the names of three or four guys who have recently graduated who have good potential. We're going to hire a young preacher who will grow with us and we're going to make him successful. Oh, that's great to hear. And I always thought that would be a great slogan for lay leaders. We're, we're going to make our preacher successful. Mm. Well, I, I came to Southeast and guys, I'm telling you, this was a garden spot. It was just ideal for a young preacher and ripe for growth. When Jesus talked about some seed falls on fertile soil and some will produce 30, 60, 100 fold, uh, this was a 100 fold potential church. You'd have to be really poor to mess it up. <laughs> and so I began with my concept of being the preacher was to be a, uh, a pastor to everybody. And so I was like everybody's chaplain. I visited in the nursing homes and I visited in the hospitals and I counseled people. But then we reached a point where this started to grow so rapidly that yeah. it got beyond my ability to control. And there was a point where I went to our elders and I said, you know, it looks like everything's going great. But to be honest with you, I'm, I'm kind of overwhelmed here. I, there are a lot of loose ends. I'm not getting things accomplished anymore. And I, I'm kind of on the verge of burnout. Now, average lay leaders would say at that time, well, you're finding out what's like to work. Everybody's got to work more than one day a week. <laughs> you're finding <laughs> out too. But these guys were really sharp. They really wanted the church to grow and they loved the Lord. And they said, well, how are you spending your time? And they listened to me. And then they began to make recommendations of what I could delegate out. And they said, well, you need to quit preaching on Sunday nights. You get some other people to do that. And you're doing marriage counseling and that's really not one of your great strengths. Why don't you, why don't you uh, refer to other people for that? And then they said, how often are you going to the hospital? I'm going to the hospital three times a week. They said, you know what? You just go to the hospital and visit people who are terminally ill. We'll recruit people in the church who have, um, who have uh, mercy gifts. And we'll see somebody's in the hospital every day. And we'll tell the congregation, this is not what you're expected to do. So I moved from being the pastor to being the preacher. 
and my focus was primarily preaching and overseeing the staff. Then eventually I became kind of the CEO of the church. And those, those transitions were not without some uh, pain. They took place gradually. But I learned a whole lot about leadership from listening to the lay leaders in the church who were successful business leaders. Mm. And I learned a lot about leadership by observing uh, preachers in situations that were maybe a level above where our church was at the time, but it was mostly by trial and error. That is great to hear. I, I, it really is. You can only grow as much as your capacity is. And when you reach capacity, it's that point you yeah. have to start delegating tasks and Bob, I'm sure there, I know you said marriage counseling might not have been a strength of yours, but I'm sure some of that was, was it hard for you to give up some of those tasks? Yeah, there were some things that were difficult to give up, but I could, I was really, I could bless, uh, blame the elders and somebody coming <laughs> in, you know, uh, we're, yeah, I, yeah, we're having some marital problems and I'm not sure my husband will go to a counselor, but I think he'll talk to you. He likes you. And I can say, well, you know, I'd like to do your counseling, but the elders have asked me not to do that anymore. Uh, let me refer you to somebody. But they, that really helped because I had a hard time saying no when I was young. And uh, to have those kinds of uh, supporters around me really helped out. It was hard not to uh, not go to the hospital and when mm. somebody was, was sick. And But, you know, the, the congregation was pretty supportive because the, the, the transitions take place. And a lot of times the preacher knows you got to make those transitions, but the congregation isn't ready for it. Mm. So I announced to the church and I, and to our new member class and the whole church, I said, we all like the church. We like the way it's growing. We're excited to be here, but I can't be your personal chaplain anymore. Mm -hmm. So the elders have asked me to do this. And so, and everybody buys into it until they're in the hospital. Yep. Or until their their mother is uh, in the hospital, and then it, it's a different situation. You know, Bob, I it really is. You know, people don't like change. So for a pastor to become start delegating tasks, uh, kind of the picture of what that church could look like might change for the the congregation. And I, I know it's not easy for for us, but to be able to to take the gospel to more people, to reach more. We, we do need to let go of that. How, how quickly, I know it was from 120 to, I mean, at one point it was up to 18,000. How quickly did that growth come? Well, it, it grew slowly at first, sometimes just by 15, 20 people. But then uh, it was kind of an exponential growth. We got to the place where we were running uh, 12, 1,500 people in a building that seated 500, and we knew we had to relocate. Hmm. And uh, when we when we relocated, and I, I told the uh, chairman of the of the building committee, look, I have just two requests about this building. I want the seating to be in a semicircle because I think that creates a warm atmosphere. But secondly, I don't want this new building to seat more than 1,500 people. Because with 1,500 seats, we can have 3,000 people in two services. We'll never get any bigger than that. <laughs> and if we have more than 1,500 people rattle around in there on Wednesday night, Sunday night, and uh, that was my vision. Uh, and he looked at me and said, you know what? Your faith is too small. Mm. You just keep wow. preaching and we're going to build. And they built a building that seated 2,500 people. And I, I'm telling you, I was in me, my early ages, stages, I was so blessed to have these guys around me who were lay leaders, who were visionary, who were supportive, who 
who understood leadership, and I learned a lot from them. And a lot of young preachers, there, there are two things they have. They don't have those kind of leaders, and they got to do it all themselves, or they make the mistake of thinking that they have to be the leader all the time, and they don't learn to uh, empower other people around them to lead and listen to other people around them. Baba, I love that you said that. That's been a common theme of people and guests that we've interviewed, having pace setters around us, people around us. Um, we are not the smartest people at the table or the leader shouldn't be the smartest person at the table, right? But we, we should have a team of strong individuals that can help cover weaknesses and force strengths. Um, and it sounded like you had that as a young leader, which is really such a big blessing that you did. Can you tell us about a pivotal moment that you look back on that changed your leadership and life during this time of rapid church growth and getting more leadership responsibility? Um, can you identify that moment for us? Yes, that, that's a good question, and actually it's pretty easy for me to answer. It was not a pleasant experience, but I can tell you the pivotal moment early on, when we got to be about 300 people, we decided we needed to have a youth minister. And these were in the days when multiple staffs were kind of rare, and yeah. we, we, we added a youth minister. I said, I, I know just the guy. I went to school with this guy. He was a friend of mine. He's a year older than I am. And he's in the youth ministry in Georgia right now. And he's having some difficulties. I think he's movable. Well, those ought to be three strikes against you. <laughs> <laughs> friend, you're older, ministry not going well. But this guy was <laughs> a, a really talented guy. And he interviewed well. And we liked each other. So we hired him. And he and I had some good times at first. But he wasn't there very long before I discovered that his, his vision of what he wanted for the youth ministry was not my vision for youth ministry. Mm. And I, uh, I, rather than confront him, I was af afraid I was going to lose a friend. I was af af afraid he would get angry. So I just tiptoed around the edges. And it kept getting worse and worse. And the elders would say, boy, this youth ministry is not going very well. We might have to ask this guy to step aside. And I say, oh, right. no, it'll get better. It'll get better. And I guess it's, I'm kind of naive. I think that all problems will eventually resolve themselves <laughs> if you just let them. And, um, Time heals It didn't all. get better. <laughs> and that's not necessarily true. Just ignore it. Just ignore it. It'll go away. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but one day, I, I happened to read an article he had written to promote a teen all-nighter in our church newsletter, and he was going to call it a teenage love-in. And I, I thought, you know, in, in light of the hippie culture of that day, in light of the fact that some of the didn't have a whole lot of confidence in him, this is not a good title. And you know how it is. You don't confront. Eventually, something will happen, be the straw that breaks the camel's back, and I got enough courage to march into his office and say, I, I think we need to get another title for this youth activity. He had sensed the distancing in our relationship. Yeah. And he, he dug his heels in. And he said, I think I know how to lead kids. That's what we're going to call it. Wow. And all of a sudden I've got insubordination and I know I'm in trouble. So I dumped too much too late and mm. we have some words and I marched out of the office saying, uh, don't you realize this is the kind of thing that can get you fired? Well, which is really leadership 101. <laughs> but he asked, he asked to be on the uh, 
the agenda for next elders meeting. And in the next elders meeting, he said, I think you guys need to know that Bob Russell's trying to get me fired. Well, they said, well, that's, that's kind of interesting. We've been trying to get you fired for six months. <laughs> oh, and we've been uh, oh, that's, that's good. That's right. So all seven of the elders said, you know what? We think this, your, your ministry's over. We'd like for you to step aside. He mm-hmm. said, I'm not stepping aside. That's not what's best for this church. That's mm-hmm. not what's best for these kids. He marched down. And that week he wrote a letter to all, every member of the church saying, I've had a disagreement with Bob Russell and the elders. They've asked me to resign and I didn't resign. And I'm not going to burden you with all the problems we've had but uh, in this letter. But I'm going to be standing outside the church building this Sunday. I've got a 10-page document showing you the problem. And the next Sunday, everyone, as they stood outside the church, he had his 10-page document quoting me, misquoting me and the elders, putting us in the worst possible light. Mm. And this, guys, that was my baptism of fire in ministry. Mm. And the congregation was stunned because they thought everything was going so great. And uh, he taught a Sunday school class and met in his house. And for three months, they marched to church every Sunday morning, sat in front two pews and folded their arms and scowled at me when I preached. Mm -hmm. And it was was a tough period for me. I I, I thought about leaving the church at that time. But you know what? Every church is going to have problems. Right. Uh, The the difference is how you handle those problems. And I, I, I went to the elders at this time and I said, look, I've got an opportunity to go someplace else. If you think it'd be best for the church, since I'm at the center of this controversy, I'm willing to step aside. And all seven of them said, no, we want you to stay. We're going to work through this problem. And I discovered something. If you have unity at the core, you can go through a lot. Mm, that's good. It, it's when, when you have division at the core that you're in trouble. That's why it's wise for young guys, make friends of your lay leaders. And uh, mm. be close to them so they have unity at the core. But when that was over, I became a different leader. You talk about a defining moment for me. I became a confrontational leader because I realized this guy, this youth minister's problem wasn't just his problem. It was my problem. Yeah. I had failed. I had failed to confront. I had failed to be honest enough with him to say, hey, I disagree with our direction. Here are the parameters I want. Can you work within mm. these boundaries? And my failure to confront almost divided our church. So from that point on, I became a confronter. And I learned, you don't have to confront everything. I had a mentor who said that uh, when you have problems, you got to decide whether you got measles or whether it's a malignancy. If it's measles, you just wait and throw it away. If it's a malignancy, you got better confront. But I I, I developed the courage to confront, and uh, that made me a different leader from that point on. I'm sorry if I rambled. No, no, that's so great. That really is good. And it, because it's so practical, I, I'm pretty sure Chandler, I know for me, I'm assuming you as well, like we've probably failed that area too as leaders or in our community with our friends or with our families. But that is one of the most important things. Any young leaders listening right now, if you have not communicated the problem or and, and sought out healthy conflict with the individual that you feel like isn't listening to you, you guys have some tension growing between you, that's on you. It's now become your problem. You need to be proactive and go address that problem, have healthy conflict. Because Bob, it's it's bit me before as well. Um, and I, I've, I do my best. You know, to- I'm, I'm convinced that 80% of the problems we have on church staffs would be resolved if we just practice what Jesus said. If you got something against your brother, go to him oh. and between the two of you. Preach. Preach it. Say it again, Bob. Say it again louder. <laughs> That's so Praise good. the Lord. That's so good. Well, I know that that was a pivotal moment uh, that changed the way that you led, uh, led in healthy conflict and confrontation. 
Uh, moving on to the next question, what was your biggest mistake as a leader getting started? You know, jumping into Southeast, it was a smaller church, and then it grew to what it was. What was your biggest mistake getting started? Well, I think uh, my biggest mistake was trying to please everybody. I'm a people pleaser. And uh, if you try to please everybody, you, you wind up trying to do more than you can do. And my biggest mistake was a horrendous one. Uh, I hope the guys will continue to listen to this, pro- this uh, podcast so they don't think I'm a total loser. I'm going to tell you about another mistake that I made. <laughs> I, I, uh, I forgot a wedding one day. And I had a lot of excuses as to why I forgot the wedding. It was on uh, Saturday, which is my day off. I had two weddings on the same day, and the rehearsal for this wedding had been earlier in the week. And But the bottom line is I forgot this all-important date on of this calendar of this young couple. Mm-hmm. I got up in the morning on Saturday morning. I said to my wife, I don't think I have a, another activity until that wedding. Tonight I'm going to take my sons, and we're going to go to this the neighbor's little league baseball game. Oh no. Well, this is before, before cell phones. Oh, so I come strolling back in at one 30 and my wife's in a panic at the door. She said, Bob, did you forget you had a wedding today at one o'clock? Oh, wow. I mean, I was devastated. I've never told people this, never told preachers this story. Nobody ever comes up and say, I'll tell you one worse than that. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> a oh, it's good. That's this the is the top of them all. Oh, and, uh, I mean, I was sick. And I said, I, well, you know that old saying about if you've got a frog to swallow, don't look at it very long. So I, <laughs> I said, I've got to apologize to this couple. So I hopped in the car and I drove up to church, which is a 10-minute drive. And I would say, I'm a minister of the gospel, but you wouldn't believe the number of lies that came to my mind as I'm driving to church. <laughs> you know, I had a flat tire. I got stopped by a train. I, I saw a vision of a 70-foot-high Jesus. I was in a train. <laughs> Now, I, I, envision couple, I envision this couple sitting or g- getting their pictures taken. I walk in the sanctuary and the whole family is up front getting their picture taken. The bride spots me as soon as I come through the door. And she said, oh, Brother Bob, we're so thankful you're all right. We were afraid you in an accident or something. What happened? Mm. And boy, it took every ounce of integrity I've got in my life to say, I am so sorry. I, I forgot. Hmm. And the, the couple and the family were as, as gracious as they could be. I'm thankful. They didn't shoot me, basically. <laughs> I, I, I was so down because of that. I thought to myself, I am such a goof. I, I don't belong in ministry, especially this ministry. I'm just out of control. And guys, that year I did 32 weddings. Oh, wow which is way out of control. So I said, I, I've got to make some changes. So I marched into my secretary's office on Monday morning and I put my calendar on, on her desk. And I said, I, from now on, I want you to run my life. Here are the times that I will see people. Yeah. And when somebody asks to see me, I'm gonna say, I don't run my own calendar, call my secretary. Next year, I'm just gonna do 15 weddings, first come, first serve. You channel the others out to staff people. She got a little committee together to decide what meetings I should speak at and what places I should go. And I discovered uh, that I had some margin in my life. Mm. And all of a sudden, I, I, I wasn't missing meetings. I wasn't uh, crammed in too much. 
and I had some weekends free. And I learned in the, through that horrible, horrible experience about delegation and to empower some other people to help you in areas where you're weak. Mm. And that horrible mistake uh, b- became a, another defining moment in my life. And I got to tell you, it's not always easy. About six months later, I'm walking through the sanctuary of uh, the church on Saturday morning and the custodian's setting up for a wedding. And I said, somebody getting married tonight? Yes, who is it? And when he told me, I was really disappointed because it was the, the daughter of a family that I'm really close to in the church. So I went to my secretary on Sunday mor- or Monday morning and I said, look, I know we said just 15 weddings next year, but when somebody like that asks for me, make an exception. <laughs> and she said, they didn't ask for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is gold. That's where we're in trouble because ego wants to control everything. Ego likes to think that that nobody can do it as well as you can, that everything's got to revolve around you. But the, the tough part is to be able to delegate and give honor to other people and let other people uh, run the program and not micromanage everything. Man, that's so practical and not just... I, I hate that you had to go through that experience to learn that and one that you'll never forget. And honestly, when others hear it, you'll never, I'm enjoying never, the story. I never don't hate forget. it for you. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's really a buffoon. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a lesson. Uh, I don't use anybody. I don't. <laughs> but it's a lesson that is so uh, necessary to mm-hmm. delegate, but also to set up margin in your life so that you can give time to what is in front of you. And uh, it's just a very valuable lesson for, for young leaders and all, all leaders to learn. So thanks for sharing that story. Before we get to the next question, let's take a moment to hear from one of our sponsors. Do you ever feel like you don't know where to start with volunteer training? Or if you do, is it hard to get everyone in the same place at the same time? Well, Ministry Grid makes it simple to train every volunteer and leader in your church. With a library of 3,500 videos and 800 courses, you will find training for every ministry area and leadership level. From volunteers to leaders to ministry directors, Ministry Grid's scope and sequence of training makes it easy to know who needs what training. And here's the best news of all. For the month of August, you can get unlimited access to Ministry Grid for your entire church for just $3.99 a year. And you are locked in every year after to this great price. So if you want to take advantage of this incredible deal, just go to ministrygrid.com slash podcast to get unlimited training for $3.99. Once again, that is ministrygrid.com slash podcast. Now back to the episode. Bob, what book do you wish someone gave you when you were just starting to lead? Well, that's, that's a tougher question, I, I guess. And you can't, uh, you can't say the Bible. That, one, that one's <laughs> off the table. That was assumed. Yeah. I, I like a book called uh, Conform to His Image by Ken Boa. Ken Boa was kind of a Bible study teacher to Charles Colson. Charles Colson recommended him. And Conform to His Image is, is a, a book about basic Bible doctrine. I, I look back and I, I wish I'd have preached more solid doctrine to our church. And that book would have helped me to break it up so that I could, would uh, jumped into it earlier. But you know, somebody early on in my ministry, one Christmas gave me a $200 check. And they said, this is a gift for you to enhance your library. Hmm. And I didn't go buy a book. I was just starting to listen on occasion to Charles Swindoll preach on radio. And 
I, I was impressed with him, so I ordered two hundred dollars worth of his uh, teaching tapes. And for my devotional time, for quite a while after that, I would get up and listen to half of Charles Swindoll preaching through the Book of Romans. Hmm. And he was so good at that stage of not only expository preaching, but application in his preaching. And I learned a lot about preaching and expository preaching and application from that gift of $200. It wasn't a book, but it was a, a tape about uh, listening to somebody preach. It was kind of my devotional life. That's really good. I, I think if I if I had $200 to spend on, on books, I, I would try to go f- find every book that everybody's recommended on this podcast because yeah. they're all so good. Um, Bob, moving on to the next question. Your succession plan at Southeast was, you know, a, from our view, a great success. Yeah, and you've shared, good. yeah, and you've shared uh, that process at conferences, including our own pipeline conference. Do you mind sharing about your all's kind of plan and journey and the advice you would give to younger pastors who may be stepping into the pastorate and replacing a pastor who is there long term? Sure, I'll try to condense it as best I can. Uh, I, I was so aware that what was going on at Southeast Christian Church was of God. It was just a special place. One of my favorite sayings was that one about, if you see a turtle on top of a fence post, you know it didn't get there by itself. <laughs> and when, when I, I would look at the church and I'd say, God is doing some wonderful things here, but it needs to continue. And one day, I'm not sure how I got a hold of it, but I read Joel Gregory's book, too Great a Temptation. And that book is all about the failed transition that took place at First Baptist in Dallas, Texas with W. Criswell. And I, I thought to myself, we can't let that happen at Southeast Christian Church. Hmm. We gotta be smarter than that. We wanna have a goal, This we wanna make this church a growing, healthy church for 100 years. How can we do that? And, and I had seen so many guys that I knew uh, tear down what they had helped to build up toward the end of their ministry, or they left and the next stage was a disaster. Hmm. So I took that book by Joe Gregory to our elders and asked them to, to read it. And it sobered them up because I was in my late 50s. And they said, Bob, why don't you, on your next study break, why don't you come back with a long-range transition plan that we can use as a this kind of a skeletal plan to, to tweak and, and try to work what we can do in the future. So I came back from my study break and I said, okay, here's four or five principles for our future. I think Dave Stone should be my successor. Dave Stone had been on staff for 12, 14 years at that time. And he was the guy who filled in for me when I was gone and he was 15 years younger than me and the congregation loved him and he had a lot of leadership talent. And secondly, when I leave, we need to, before I leave, we need to hire a third person for the teaching team so that they will have somebody to share it with and somebody who has contrasting gifts to him. He was more of a topical preacher and I thought the, the one to compliment him would be more of a, a, a Bible teacher. The third part of a transition plan was I would retire uh, somewhere 
around 2006 or 2008 because I would have been there 40 years. Huh. And uh, when I retired, I would leave the church and not come back for a year. Wow. As a signal that, that I was gone. Because when so many times guys sit in the front seat and everybody's looking at them to see with whether they're crossing their arms or raising their eyebrows and read the body language, every change that takes place. And the poor successor has got to have that down his, uh, in his ear all the time. So I said, I'm going to leave and I'm going to be gone for a year. And then the, uh, the compensation would, would be left up to the eldership. And uh, that transition really worked, worked very well. Uh, Dave Stone became my successor and it wasn't easy because I'd been there for 40 years. Sure. But uh, he he took the church. They started some uh, satellite churches. They've got six or seven campuses. And uh, the church has grown from 18,000 to about 28,000 now. You can tell they, they really missed me. <laughs> they, <laughs> and uh, missions, is, they've been debt-free. And it, it and now Dave has retired at a fairly young year, age after 13 years. And Kyle Eidemann, who was the third man we brought in is now the senior pastor. But we've been asked to share that story in a lot of different places because uh, successful transitions are pretty rare. They are. I don't know that there's, uh, ours is not a model for anybody else to follow, but I I did write a little book about transition plan. And, uh, but there are some ideas because every, every situation's unique. Mm -hmm. And you have to say something to, to young people, young preachers who are taking over. Uh, yeah. I would say if you're, if you're succeeding a person who's been there for a long time, or even someone who's short time, let's say two or three things. One is make changes slowly. You're so eager to start new ideas. But Fred Craddock once said, you, you don't rearrange the furniture in the room of a disoriented person. Mm-hmm. And to change preachers is a big change. And people are a little disoriented. And the more you can keep things going the same way for a period, generally speaking, that that's the best. Now, if the church has been on rapid decline and people are wanting changes, that's a little different. For the sure. second counsel I, I would give is continue to honor the past. That old older people uh, want to know that they're still worth something. I, I went to a church as a guest speaker in Cincinnati where the preacher took a, uh, followed a guy had been there for 50 years and he managed to bring everybody on board for a complete relocation, but it took him four or five years to get there. But the Sunday I was there, he said, I'd like for all the charter members to stand up. And I said, they would I applauded. I'd like for Harold Hockley, our former minister to stand up. And this mm-hmm. old guy stands up, said, we're, we're building on the shoulders of these people. If these people hadn't had vision, we wouldn't be able to do what, you know, and it just embraced all those older people and made them feel like they were valued. And even though you might get tired of hearing it, you honor the person who has preceded you and the people that you're building on their shoulders. The, the last thing I would say to young pastors is understand that people have the capacity to love more than one pastor. Just like parents, parents love the second child this much as the first child, the third child this much as the first child. People have an amazing capacity to love. And just because people come up and they're bragging about the former pastor and the way he did it, don't feel like you're in competition with him. You, you just be patient. You love them in return. They're always going to love the former pastor if they're older. 
but they have a capacity to love you too. And if you're patient in the course of time, uh, you'll be their leader just assuredly as the former pastor was. That is all, you know, if some, if you're a young leader stepping into that, or maybe you do step into it down the road, that is just incredible advice from uh, Bob, who has, has walked through this and seen other leaders do it as well. So thanks for that advice. At uh, this time, we're going to transition to the quick hitter questions. And the first one is this, is what is your ideal daily routine? So what time do you wake up, get into the office, all that good stuff? Okay, I'm an early riser, and this is my nature. I wake up and get up at six o'clock, and as soon as I hit the floor, I'm feeling great. And uh, I uh, I take 20 minutes or so in the morning to have uh, own personal devotions. I, I read, uh, I kneel and pray, and pray out loud, and and then uh, read a chapter in the Old Testament, chapter in the New Testament, and usually have a a book that I'm reading or something I'm studying for my devotional time. I'm embarrassed when you read about Martin Luther, some of those guys taking two hours. But <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but then I, I, I always felt like if I if I wasn't in the office by eight o'clock, I was late. I, I usually got there earlier than that. I could accomplish more between uh, 7.15 and nine o'clock than I could the rest of the day because there weren't <laughs> any interruptions. But I would study in the mornings. In fact, I had a routine where I asked the secretary to hold all calls mm. unless they were emergency. And I only made appointments in the afternoon and because the morning's my alert time. And that's when I, I studied. And I try to carve out uh, 18, 20 hours a week for studying for sermons. I'm, that's awesome. I'm slow at writing the sermons, but that was, that was my priority. And I, I believe it ought to be a priority for every preacher. The most important thing you do is uh, preparing that sermon. Mm. I'd have lunch with somebody and usually some meetings in the afternoon and, uh, then the longer I preached, the fewer times I was out in the evenings. I try to have evenings for family, but there are evening meetings. But for the most part, when I walked away at the end of the day at 4.30 or 5 o'clock, uh, I was finished for the day. And I, I learned to shift gears and to say, that's the best I can do today. I'm a little behind, but I'm not going to take work home and, and uh, I have to get up earlier in the morning to catch up. I, that's what I would do. Hmm, that's good. What's your favorite personality test, Bob? You know, I, I've taken the DISC profile. Yeah. And I, I do I do mentoring groups for preachers. After I retired, every month I bring in eight different preachers and we spend three days talking about ministry. And I have done a hundred of these retreats. It's incredible. If you told me I'd do a hundred retreats and, and I get bored, I, I would never believe it. It's kind of my sweet spot. <laughs> but but part, part of that retreat is we bring an expert on the DISC profile and she comes in and mm -hmm. gives a DISC profile for these guys. So I had to take it myself and I, uh, I am a high D and a high S. Yeah. High dominance and high steadiness. And uh, those, uh, I have to gear down my dominance sometimes when working with other people. And I have to be willing to make changes faster than uh, I want sometimes because the, I, I, I sometimes want to have too many details covered before we make changes, but that's my pro profile. So random question to go along with this. You've done so many of these events and probably, you know, there's a lot of different people, a lot of different personalities and not all preachers are the same personality, but what's been a common, have you seen a common um, profile with the preachers that come to this event? Is there some more similarity than not? We have analyzed that some. And I would say probably there are more high Ds 
that are preachers of large churches than there are high seas. But it's interesting because God uses every personality sure. type yep. to lead. And uh, there's a big, just look at the NCAA Final Four of this past year. Uh, you've got uh, Tony Bennett of Virginia and Bruce Pearl of Auburn. And their behavior on the sidelines is so <laughs> markedly different. So and yet true. both of those are dynamic leaders. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes young preachers look at the high D leaders and they'll say, man, I'm not like that. I'm, I'm not an upfront person. I'm not a cheerleader. I wonder if I can lead. And we need to understand there are all kinds of, uh, of uh, leadership styles that God can honor. And I've seen some very, very effective leaders who are introverts, effective leaders who are quiet guys, but they get in and they're faithful and the people come to respect them. And there's a convictional leadership from uh, different styles. Thank you so much for saying that. That's yeah. that's really important for people listening. It's it's so easy to look at those ahead of us and say, I got to be that person. Yeah. I got to fit that personality. But God is uniquely wired each of us. And we, we would miss out on how he wants to use us if we try to be somebody else. So yeah. thanks for that. Next uh, question is, what is an unusual habit that helps you in your leadership? Well, uh, I, I battled... Uh, I said, I'm a morning person. I'm alert in the morning. Two o'clock in the afternoon, I hit a brick wall almost every day. And it doesn't <laughs> matter. Exercise, I mean, how much I slept the night before. And I would sometimes just really struggle in the afternoons until I finally decided I'm not going to battle anymore. And I take a nap every day. I love oh, that. that is incredible. I love it. I'm going to start the last that here. Years, I, didn't, I didn't apologize for it. Uh, I, I would say the secretary... Uh, two o'clock. I'm gonna take a nap. Uh, buzz me at two thirty, and she and the staff would tease me about. It. They, they you had your nap today, but I, I, you know, I just laugh about it. And I, I mean, the rest of the day, I'm alert. Uh, it's just amazing yeah. how twenty minutes revitalizes me. So I had to know my body chemistry, and uh, for a while, I didn't tell anybody. But eventually, it became a known fact. That's so. It was a twenty minute nap. Yes. Okay. And, uh, that's all. That's all I need. That's, that's awesome. Uh, I, I heard recently somebody was talking about um, if they actually drank a cup of coffee right before they took a nap, what would happen is, is you, you drink the coffee, take about a 15 to 20 minute nap. And then when you wake up, you're, you're energized from the nap, but then the coffee's kicked in as well. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to have to try this. That's so, a good idea. so we'll see. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll try it. Uh, um, I was driving I was I was driving somewhere the other day at two o'clock in the afternoon and I got really groggy. So I just pulled off the exit ramp and there was a service station right there and I just pulled right up. I mean, in 30 seconds, I was asleep. <laughs> 15, minutes, 15 minutes later, I woke up and thought I was still driving. And I mean, I, I there's a tree right in front of me. It must have taken me three or four seconds before I realized, oh, I'm not driving. <laughs> I am not driving anymore. We've, we've all had those moments. Bob, I love you and your vulnerability with your stories. They're so good, man. Incredible storyteller. Yeah. Well, Bob, moving on to the next next question. What has been the best book you've read in the past six months? I read a book by Michael Medved uh, probably four weeks ago called The American Miracle. And I read it in preparation. I'd been asked to speak at a uh, July 4th rally. And I, I really like this book. Uh, you know, there, there are two extremes. There are those who think that uh, 
God's up in heaven with an American flag wrapped around him, and mm. they confuse America with Christianity. But I fear we're going to the opposite extreme today, and this incredible nation that's been entrusted to us, we're very passive about it and see only its faults and forget how blessed we are. And we need to be thankful for it. And we're stewards of this nation. And Christian leaders need to be encouraged to, to be faithful stewards of this country so that our children and grandchildren can continue to enjoy the freedoms that we've enjoyed. So Michael Medved's book talks about the providence of God from the Mayflower to the Revolutionary War to the Civil War to World War II, some incredible things have happened that you can call them luck or chance, mm-hmm. but uh, they were God incidences. God had a special purpose for this nation. And that book is called The American Miracle, Divine Providence, and the Rise of the Republic. I looked it up and marked it as one well, three. That's, that's great. And, and Michael is, is a Orthodox Jew. Oh, wow. That's good. That's good. Well, last question, and it's my favorite one, Bob. What one sentence advice would you give someone going into a leadership position for the very first time? Mm. Well, in, in the book that I wrote about after 50 years of ministry, uh, the publisher asked me to write a concluding chapter. And there are two phrases in that that I would incorporate in one sentence. And I would say, be faithful and be joyful and trust God for the rest. Mm-hmm. If we, you know, I, I think we tell God we love him the most by just going through our duty on days when we don't feel like it. And not only just going through our duty, but doing so in a spirit of joy. You know, uh, there ought to be a distinctive about a Christian leader, and, and that is joy. That, that people ought to, ought to see that, we love to preach. We love to be a church. We love Jesus Christ. And this is this is a fun journey because we have this hope that can never perish, spoil, or fade kept in heaven for us. Absolutely. And, uh, there, there ought to be a contagious joy. And if we're faithful and, and we're joyful, uh, I think God's going to take care of the rest. Well, thank you for that advice. I know it's uh, extremely applicable for all of us. And I actually received uh, your book after 50 years uh, of ministry as a gift. And it is such a great book. And if you're a young leader out there, I would challenge you to, to get it. Bob has so much wise advice that you've heard on this podcast. And there's just so much more even in that book. So, Bob, thanks for joining us and sharing all the great stories that you did with us today and being vulnerable and sharing about your story as a young leader. And thank you for listening today. Um, if you enjoyed this, head on over to iTunes and leave a rating and review so that another young leader like yourself can find the podcast. And we'll see you next week. See ya. See ya. Thanks, Bob.